WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Danny and I are here at the Cogs Fall Welcome event. This is really exciting because we've gone to meet a lot of new students here at MSU and some old ones as well. Right now for our first interviewee, we're here with Abdul Koyem. All right, hi everyone, MSU, Spartans, and people who are listening from anywhere. <laughs> Welcome, Abdul. Thank Thanks you. for joining us this morning. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're working on? Well, thank you for having me. I am currently starting my first year as a PhD student in the engineering department. I am uh, part of the civil engineering department, actually, and I'm going to start studying composite materials. And that basically means if you have two materials, one is strong, or like you try to get the best of both worlds from whatever materials you're working with. So if you have something that's strong and something that's hard, you try to combine both so you can get both of those qualities. That's interesting. I've heard of composite materials, especially when it comes to like dentistry, whenever they're doing fillings and stuff like that. What are you specifically trying to do with this for the application? Well, the materials that we're working with are usually fiber-enforced polymers, so stuff like glass fibers, Kevlar-enforced polymers, or more often than not, carbon fiber-enforced polymers. And the best thing about them is that they're pretty lightweight and they have a very good strength. So people tend to use them in applications where weight is very crucial because they're kind of a little bit more expensive than your average metal. And stuff like that goes into airplanes, really expensive cars. Some people even put them in your rackets for tennis and stuff like that just because, hey, if it's strong and if it's light, that's good for us. People don't realize that polymers actually exist all around in our society in different applications that we never regularly think about. When it comes to the polymers that you're studying in your laboratory, what exactly are you trying to understand about it? Are you trying to understand things like tensile strength, or are you looking into other properties? Well, we're more interested in how to make them easier. That's pretty much manufacturing and processing of the materials themselves and how we can construct them in ways that are faster, cheaper, and more accessible to different applications. There are so many different ways to make a material. How are you specifically doing it? Like, are you creating everything from scratch in your lab? Well, we have already templates that we're using, but we're more interested in our research or like the thing that we're trying to investigate is how we can make them into more complex shapes. And one of the most innovative ways to make complex shapes is with 3D printing. And we're basically trying to figure out how we can 3D print these kinds of materials just because it's not a consistent, like usually when you do 3D printing, you have one material that you're just pushing out of a nozzle. But when you have a composite, that makes it a little bit more complicated because you have to account for both how both materials interact with each other when they're coming out of whatever extruder you make. When it comes to this idea of using the 3D printer, how do you identify what kind of materials you want to work with and how does this process of 3D printing go about? Well, for traditional 3D printing, what you have is they made specific materials that can be extruded or can be 3D printed, but for our case, it's not as simple. We're trying actually to apply the manufacturing process to a new material that hasn't been traditionally manufactured that way. So our job or our focus on this study is basically to try and make it in that or 3D print it and then see how basically it comes out and comment on how this methodology can be improved to make it better in the next time. That's really incredible. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us today, Abdul. It was really great to hear from you, and hopefully you're able to join us for a future interview again. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'd love to. 
we're here with Daniel Maldonado, who comes from the material science department. Daniel, can you talk to us a little bit about the work that you're doing in the laboratory? Absolutely. So I'm originally from Mexico. I did my bachelor's over there. I did an internship in my last semesters of college at UC San Diego. There I discovered computational material science, which is using some principles of quantum mechanics together with computation to simulate materials and their properties. So I did some research over there on photovoltaics, but I've branched out since then. After that, I did some research on magnetic materials, and currently I'm doing catalysis, so catalysts, and all through computational material science. Wow, that's a really great story and adventure that you've embarked on. I'm really glad that you're here at Michigan State with us. So when you say catalysis or catalyst, what particularly are you going to be studying with that? Okay, so I'm researching a material right now that is called, well, in the scientific jargon, we call it burnicite, which is a relatively new material, and it's used for oxygen evolution reaction, which is essentially you take water and you turn it into hydrogen. So you can do hydrogen generation. This catalyst was discovered partially by the researcher that I'm working with right now, and this project kind of develops more ideas on this particular catalyst. So essentially, it's very similar to what plants use to separate water into like hydrogen and oxygen. And inside their protein membranes, they have a little catalyst. And we're essentially trying to mimic that, but from this other material that's very similar. It's really cool, Daniel. One of the things I think about when I hear hydrogen production also is the use of nuclear energy to produce hydrogen. So it's really great to hear that there are multiple avenues that are being developed when it comes to this field of material science. I've actually done a little bit of research on materials to remedy nuclear waste. So essentially, I, I work a lot with 2D materials, so surfaces, essentially materials that are only like a few atoms thick. And what we did for, for one project is use these materials to filter out actinides. So essentially we, we covered a bunch of materials and we saw which ones liked to have actinides intercalated into, them, into their layers because they're 2D materials. So essentially it's a way to, in the future, instead of converting like nuclear waste into glass and then storing it for a bunch of years, maybe there's a way to have a better filter for only the actinides and then deal with everything else afterwards. All right, so not many of our listeners know a lot about nuclear waste or any <laughs> of this. So what do you mean by actinides? Actinides, it's a group of elements on the periodic table. So from actinium to, I don't remember the last one, but it's like 12 elements. And they're, they're, they're the ones that, that are essentially, essentially the, the largest problem when, when we produce nuclear energy. And why is that? Because they're very radioactive. Oh. Yes. All right, Daniel, final question for today's little snippet. I wanted to ask, when it comes to the catalyst agent that you're studying right now mm -hmm. here at Michigan State, what do you plan on doing with that catalyst? How exactly are you actually studying it? Okay, so we're using simulations to study it. So what we wanted to know, because this material has already been synthesized in a lab, what we, what we wanted to know is what exactly in this material makes it so good as a catalyst for this specific reaction. So there's ways to know that, mainly through electronic structure of the material. So we calculate energy bands and density of states plots, and through that we can kind of deduce a lot of the properties of the material. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today, you. Daniel. It was really great to hear about the work that you're doing. Thanks. Next up, we're here with Max Manns, who is a second-year student in the criminal justice program. 
Max, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in that program? Yeah, sure. So my area of focus is mainly victimization and fear of crime of college students. So I'm asking students based on their identity if men, women fear crime differently on campus, if students of color are more fearful on campus of certain events. So we've seen a lot of stuff going on in the media lately and trying to see what that like on a campus is where my interest is drawn. That's really interesting. As a woman of color on campus, I definitely could relate to some times where I might not feel safe compared to a man. So whenever you're surveying these populations, do you actually have like a pen and paper and a survey that you walk around and give people, or do you send it around to the campus? So my stuff is mostly online surveys. As much as I'd love to get in the field and engage with these communities, I don't have the time to because I'm just a master's student but the dream would be to get in the field, engage with these communities, and address specific issues that would impact these communities. When it comes to the interview questions that you're going around and asking, what are some of the key questions that you find are getting some of the most interesting responses so far? So some of the most interesting responses are how people rate specific offenses. When looking at women particularly, we tend to see sexual assault being one of the higher rated fears whereas men will rate theft as their higher fear of crime. So seeing that interaction between these two and their differences. And then at the end, the responses we get from what could be done to improve the actual survey, ranging from this is great idea, talking about specific offenses, to people just saying, why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. So seeing those range of responses, pretty interesting. I'm personally curious on how we can make people feel safe on campus, no matter how they identify. So on your survey, are you giving people resources or what are these examples that you're asking saying that this is an example of how we can make you feel safe? This survey is mostly looking at what people feel right now. The next stage would be to ask specific community members what steps could be taken to improve their feelings. At the end, we do list resources available, such as the gender sexuality resource, or various clubs on campus to deal with their specific experiences, positive or negative, to share their experiences. When it comes to the survey itself, how did you come up with the questions that you think would be the most effective when it comes to collecting the experiences that you want to learn about? So when looking at the survey questions, I took a lot of inspiration from what's already been done in the field with asking women in terms of their experiences with sexual assault. Also, I took inspiration from talking to my friends. I have plenty of people who are a part of communities that are affected every day by these instances or negatively charged experiences while on campus. So hearing from them about their experiences and asking them what they would think be a good question drew me to what I did. Since you're a second year graduate student, that means that you started graduate school during the pandemic. So how did that affect your research? Were you able to ask people about how online events made them feel? So the pandemic kind of threw this through a loop because the whole goal was to do this in person the entire time. But now having to try and tweak things and be like before pandemic or post pandemic saying in person versus online. Do you feel safer doing this remotely now? Or do you feel that being in person makes things a little more accessible and easier to comprehend? Thank you so much for talking to us today, Max. I hope you enjoy the rest of the event, and we hope that you can join us for a full episode in the future. Thanks for letting me do this. Now we're joined by Harprinda Jot Singh. Harprinda Jot is in the civil engineering program here at MSU. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us what you're researching? 
Yeah, sure. I'm a fourth year PhD student at MSU and I'm in civil engineering department and my research focuses in transportation engineering. And so basically I do research related to optimization of autonomous and electric vehicles, considering their impacts on transportation, environment and electric grid network. Basically, I try to consider different factors like travel time of the users, emissions in the environment and how these vehicles will be expensive and how we can make them sustainable, how we can reduce their impact and how these vehicles can be more acceptable in the society. And so I do a planning based on that. And in terms of resource and skills, I do like optimize these cost functions and it, it includes coding and operation research and optimization. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. When it comes to the work that you're doing, are you looking at current autonomous electric vehicles that are in existence, or are you looking at it via simulation on a computer? I'm not looking at the current one, and also I'm not, I would say, not looking at operating some of the studies which do simulation of the network system, and how, like, considering, for example, there are studies related to in Ann Arbor, or I would say in Texas, Austin, they simulate traffic and they replace the existing vehicles with autonomous and electric vehicles and then I can study the impact on that specific city. Like how the users will behave, how their travel will change because of these and how emissions will be affected, how the congestion will be affected and all those factors. For those of you that don't know, autonomous vehicles are self-driving vehicles. And some people in society get nervous about that whenever they hear about a vehicle driving themselves instead of the old school times like us driving ourselves anywhere. Why would we prefer to have an autonomous vehicle over just driving ourselves? Autonomous vehicles, obviously that point you raise is like a concern to the society that like these vehicles will be driving on their own, we might not be comfortable. For that we might need good infrastructure, probably dedicated lanes for that. And why people would prefer, the basic, most important thing is people who cannot drive, for example, physically disabled people, people who don't have driver license, they will be using these vehicles because they don't have to drive. Another thing is when we have proper infrastructure, people can perform other activities inside these vehicles. Like they can do work, they can do uh, recreational things, they don't have to drive. They can just enjoy the ride, maybe just watch. When you're driving on a, uh, I would say, landscape view, maybe, Rocky Mountains in Colorado or something. That's so hypothetical. You can just enjoy the view rather than driving. What kinds of assumptions are you making whenever you're doing your modeling when it comes to these autonomous electric vehicles? The first one is, in my case, I'm assuming they are fully autonomous vehicles. Like, people can do other work, but that's something, something like long-term. Because right now, autonomous vehicle would be like semi-autonomous. Like, you might have to take over. You might Because you need time for people to get used to it. You need time for infrastructure development so that these vehicles can be fully autonomous and operational. That's the basic assumption. And other assumptions are more like reasonable, like they're specific to the city. Like for Ann Arbor, I'm considering the trip information, like how the trips are going from, like, like how users are traveling from one destination to another destinations. I don't usually ask this, but I'm curious, is a company invested in this, like a car company, and are you looking at a specific model of a vehicle? No, no, no. I'm not looking at the model of the vehicle. So I'm a transportation engineer. I'm looking at the road network, how these vehicles would impact the uh, transportation system and how these would impact the road networks, like the travel of the users. With the vehicle, it's more about, I would be say that would be more of a mechanical engineer or electrical engineer. They would be doing that job. 
Oh, well, thank you for the clarification. Yep. It was really cool talking to you about this, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It was a great time. Thank you. And for our last interviewee of today, we're here with Maria Mylan. Thanks for joining us today, Maria. Can you tell us about your research? Yeah, so I do building efficiency research, and I work with the civil engineering department at MSU, and our research was based in Alaska and rural communities, which are having a lot of problems with their infrastructure, especially related to climate change. So what I did was I went there for three weeks. I went to a rural community on the western side of Alaska, I lived there and I interviewed people about housing concerns and any designs they would like for future housing. And then I also uh, did physical energy assessments on their homes where I tested for airflow circulation and for air leaks, which they have a lot of air leaks in their house. And then I did like a physical assessment where I just walked around the building inside and outside and took note of any damage or stuff like mold and water stains and on the outside as well. And I also uh, monitored indoor air quality, so it was really a great experience. <laughs> it's really cool that you're looking at the building efficiencies over yeah. up in Alaska, and mm -hmm. especially in Alaska, that's where some of the effects of climate change are being experienced the most when it yeah. comes to any state here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. How do the changes in climate impact the way that these building efficiencies are changing? Oh. Do you see that there's a change over oh, yeah. time? So erosion is a big deal. The community sits right on the Bering Sea and also on the uh, river. There's a river that runs through it and it's been slowly eroding away the community. So a few houses have been lost to the river. This is part of why we're doing it is so that new houses can be built on the hill above the community. And another problem would be like the shifting of foundations. So people's homes, instead of being level, sometimes they shift, which results in like cracking in the porch, especially I saw that. Cracking of the crawl space's skirt, like this crawl space is covered by like a wooden planks. Some houses even had like damage from snow banks, from snow pushing against it, cracking the vinyl outside. And there's a lot of issues. They also notice a lot of changes in the river and the ice breakup. It affects their life a lot, as it was an indigenous community, and it affects their life a lot. The rising river levels, and especially the snow in Alaska, must be really impactful for them, and I feel bad for the people living there, honestly. <laughs> so whenever you're doing these analysis of the buildings, how are you doing that exactly? Like, what tools do you oh, need? Right, this is great. So I had something called a blower door test. It's a giant fan that fits in a frame in the door. I open the door and then I fit the frame to the door and I fit the fan in the door. And it depressurizes the house so that it's much different than outside and air wants to come in. And so it measures how many air changes per hour you have in your home. So how much air completely goes in and out of the home and exchanges so that it's fresh. And then it also measures where in the home air is leaking in. So for example, the windows in a lot of people's homes were new, supposedly new, and they were still very leaky. And some, when I held up like a smoke stick to the windows, it just was like blowing in air. And I was able to test that because the air wants to come in when I depressurize it. But I had to bring like, it's like 70 pounds total with the fan and the frame. I had to bring it on the plane with me. <laughs> it was quite a hassle at the airport, but it was worth it. I carried it around town with an ATV, which was really fun. But there's also my indoor air quality like data monitors. They're just little things that I set out. And every six minutes, it would measure the amount of CO2 in the house. And CO2 levels higher than 100 parts per million, so pieces of CO2 in the air, is indicative of like possible health problems. And a lot of homes had pretty high levels of that. One home even had over 2,000. It was very small homes. So like that measured that. 
Also like humidity, relative humidity to measure for possibility of mold. There was a lot of mold. I also had a camera to take pictures. <laughs> so for our last question of today's interview, I wanted to ask about how these building efficiencies compare to other communities in the nearby area. Do you find that the building efficiencies are relatively the same mm -hmm. or is there a lack of efficiency in these uh, indigenous communities just due to the lack of support from the government? Yes, they lack a lot in efficiency. The houses were built some of them even buy like government programs, but they weren't built to match the Alaskan environment and the climate. So that's a huge problem. Even homes that were built by the people in the community lacked in efficiency. It's really hard to build with materials being so far away and shipping them. But all rural communities in Alaska, as well as like Northern Canada, so Canada and Alaska in the subarctic areas, they have a lot of the same problems. So yeah, really expensive to heat the home because it's just so inefficient, stuff like that. But compared to the overall U.S., their efficiency is pretty low. Their building occupancy is really high. There's a lot of people living in one building, overcrowding. There's a lot of differences. And I think that the government really does need to start paying attention to indigenous communities like all over the country. But Alaska's just like so far away that I feel like it's being overlooked in a lot of ways. And yeah. I totally get that. Originally coming from Florida, I would have never have thought about what it's like to live in Michigan, for example. So yeah. that distance does have an impact on how we do think about these communities, unfortunately. Yeah. But thank you so much, Maria, oh, for joining welcome. us today. It was really great to hear from you, and I really appreciate your enthusiasm. Yeah, I will talk about it anytime. It really needs to be talked about more. There's really not that much research on it. So. Well, thank you so much once yeah. again. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.